Happy Mentor Monday, everyone. Welcome to the penultimate episode of Season 4 of Mentors on the Mic podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Simone Miller, an actress with credits in TV, film, off-Broadway, and commercials. And I'm here with you guys, right? We're creating this network of mentors to learn from, to grow with, to look up to, um, to aspire to be like, uh, all of the above. And, and this provides hopefully a roadmap for you to thrive, really. That's the hope anyway. Um, we've had some incredible mentors so far in season four from showrunners to directors to producers, casting directors, managers, all of it. And today is no different. Before I go into our wonderful mentor, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the mailing list. The link is in the show notes. And find us on Instagram at mentors on the mic and on Twitter at mentors on the mic and you know, say hi, reach out to me. I love hearing from you guys. Honestly, it really makes my day to get messages from you guys. I feel like I've been getting more and more messages from the listeners, from all of you, and I cannot explain to you how much I appreciate it. So thank you so much. And I recently created a website, guys. So feel free to go to mentorsonthemic.com and check it out, peruse, and let me know what you think. You can also subscribe to the mailing list there as well and listen to all of the episodes. There's even like a directory where you can like search up keywords and, you know, look up episodes that work for you. I've only added a few of those, but there's other places to search for the episode of choice. There's um, quotes that I've put up from both you, some of the listeners who have reviewed on Apple Podcasts, as well as quotes from the mentors. So check it out. Let me know what you think. It was a long time coming for me. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear what you think about it. So our mentor today is Michael Injeon. I met Michael at a Tribeca Film Festival event and right away knew there's just something about him. He knows what he's doing. He's super kind, uh, really easy to talk to. And his film just premiered at Tribeca, which was so exciting to hear a little bit about. And I was like, I want to hear more from him. Oh, and I should mention this film stars Nick Jonas, David Arquette, Brittany Snow, and a handful of incredible people. It's called The Good Half. Michael Njeon is a daytime Emmy-winning producer and daytime Emmy-nominated director with five total Emmy nominations and 26 years in film and television. He has produced feature films. He has worked on the Emmy-winning PBS travel show, Samantha Brown's Places to Live. And he has also worked on just various Films, short videos, industrials, commercials, spots. Um, when I say 26 years of working in film and television, it, it's remarkable. In one job alone, he said he, he definitely worked on over 800 projects. So it's a lot. And he goes over a lot. He gives so much information. Um, I asked him not only about his career, obviously, but also just 
tips for creating film. And I actually, I asked at the end, if someone wanted to hire you to direct or produce their project, what's something that you wish that they would know when coming to you? And um, questions like that about filmmaking. And I learned a lot personally. He's such a really, really nice guy, really genuine person to talk to. And I think we're all going to learn a lot from it. Without further ado, here's Michael and Jayon. Hi, Michael. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. Great to be here, Michelle. It's very exciting. We met not too long ago in real life. um, And so I'm I'm happy that we were able to do this. And I always start with the same question, which is great for me. It makes things really easy. But what was your first role or what would you account as the first role in the entertainment industry for you? I would say the first role in the industry for me, I I worked as an intern, as a production intern. I got the opportunity to work for a production company that did a lot of hip-hop music videos. And this is in the late 90s. This is, well, I'm sorry, mid-90s during the hip-hop, when hip-hop really hit New York City really hard. And I, it was kind of a rule of passage that you had to work as an intern for free for your first project before you became a paid production assistant. So... Uh, the assignment was a, was a Diddy video. Uh, P- back then we, he was known as Puff Daddy. So Puff Daddy was actually, it wasn't a video that he was in, but he was directing for his label, Bad Boy Entertainment. And it was a group called Total that was on his label. So he was there directing the video and typical Puff Daddy, very savvy producer, very smart guy, threw a barbecue in a, in a park in Long Island and invited his entire label there to be the backdrop for this video. He brought his cars and everything. And so that was the first video. That was the first project I ever worked on as an intern on Puff Daddy uh, video that he uh, directed. And I'll tell you one thing. It's something that has never left me for the first time in my life. I stepped foot on a set and I was a part of the production and the thrill of it has never left me, uh, whether I'm producing, whether I'm directing, whether uh, it doesn't matter what role that thrill is always there. And it always ties me back to that first time I ever stepped foot on a set. Well, that's a great first job. That must have been so exciting to be there with him, with with everybody, with with getting to to just be a part of it. Did you know what you wanted to do at that point in time? Was it something that you had any idea about, like long term stuff, or you just kind of were like, "I want to be in the industry"? Well, it's I was I was sure, but I wasn't sure uh, if that means anything. When I graduated college, I went to school at Virginia Tech. I majored in communications. I originally was an architecture major. But I realized that I loved film. I loved cinema. I loved making movies. I would make these little movies on these video recorders that we had. And I, once I figured that out, I decided to take communications and take all their film classes. And I, when I got out of college, I decided, I said, hey, I can either go to film school and pay for an education or I could try to get an education in the real world and get paid for it, but also give me a sense of if this is for me. So that by, by living right outside of New York City, it was easy for me just to jump right in and get a chance to uh, try to get a, a position. And after I started working I and started doing, you know, after my internship became a paid production assistant, then a coordinator, I, I, I kept telling myself, this is something that I really want to do. And 
I think I can make this sustainable. So I kept pressing forward, knowing um, that there was there was work out there and there was a career out there, but it would take a lot of, of you know, a lot of effort to get to where you want to be because this was uh, pre-internet. So to get a job, it was all about networking and sending resumes out and 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 knowing people just to get work. It was really about word of mouth and your reputation. Your reputation meant everything. Well, I was going to ask, how'd you get that first internship then? I sent email, I sent um, letters, I sent resumes out everywhere. I'd go to New York City to the mayor's office. Wow. They'd have a listing of, they'd have the mayor's, the, mayor, the list uh, of productions going on in New York City and, and they would give you the names of the productions and the addresses and the contacts. And I think I got the name of that production company off the list. I sent them a letter, called them up, followed up. They brought me in for an interview and they gave me a shot. And next thing I know, I was interning for the company and uh, became the head intern and became a production assistant, became the head production assistant. I I always, knowing that it was so hard to get my foot in the door, I just knew that once I was in the door, I had to do everything I could to make sure that they wanted to call me back to come back again tomorrow. And tomorrow, and tomorrow, and it's a mentality that I never forgot. It's something that I hold to this day. I never want to be complacent about any project that I'm working on because I think complacency only hurts you as a filmmaker and, and as a professional. Uh, you know, th- this is not a hobby. This is a profession. It takes a lot of years to groom yourself into where, where you want to be, and the learning never stops. So I always took that sense of I want to be called back tomorrow with me for every project I've ever worked on. Oh, it's amazing. Thank you for that. Um, so then, so from the late 90s to like even, you know, 2011, I saw that you worked as the vice president of productions at 30 FPS Productions. Was that your company or were you just, very, I mean, you were vice president. So how, how did that work in terms of getting involved with this? And then we'll start with that. How did you get involved with 30 FPS Productions? So it's funny, I got involved with 30 FPS Productions because I had been on a project. I was sort of climbing through the ranks, production assistant coordinator or sort of production managing. I did a little live producing project. And I got called for a project for a two-week shoot for ESPN. And I wasn't available because I had been on a project. And I had recommended to a colleague of mine who uh, – his his name is Matt LaGreca. He was, he's a sound mixer now, but he, was, he lives in town. We were both – fans of cinema. So I called that man. I said, man, I got this opportunity. What do you want it? I can't take it. He said, absolutely. He took the job. Anyway, he's the one who got hooked up with 30 FPS because he got linked up with them through the people who are on the project. A job opened up for the production manager role for 30 FPS. And he said, hey, you may want to check these folks out. So he recommended me. I interviewed for the position and I was hired. I was hired initially as a production manager who I was replacing the production manager for the project. And I wound up staying there for almost 13 years and I grew from production manager. They never really hired a producer. So I was sort of forced to produce on my own. It was sort of sink or swim situations and there was a great deal of work. I mean, for 30 FPS, I probably wound up producing over 800 projects because it wasn't me now as a freelancer searching for work. Work was coming through the door and we did a lot of big projects like industrials, uh, non-broadcast productions for tra- like even if it was like training films and things like that for Avon, Gap, Hertz, Panasonic, Sony. Sony, Pepsi. Pepsi, yeah. And uh, we did all these, you know, with SAG 
with SAG actors, three camera, multi camera shoots. Sometimes we do live production. Sometimes we, you know, we'd also do commercials. We'd also do longer forms. We did a little bit of everything, and it just sort of became a boot camp for me on how to be a producer because I'm dealing with small shoots where it's like two or three people to shoots up to a hundred people. And again, over the time, I developed into the producer for the company and wound up being promoted to vice president of production. We had a stage, we had a grip, we had trucks, we had equipment. Like we we just, we were a production company full up doing all all this sorts of work. And I grew into the role and wound up getting getting a great deal of experience working with actors and crew and, uh, you know, locations and directors and, you know, like just a lot of different things. It really, it taught me a lot. And I was there for almost 13 years. It's amazing. Well, also, I mean, you kind of touched on it, but you were freelance before. So this, this is, it sounds like a very ideal situation where when you're freelance for everyone listening, when you're freelance, you really are going from job to job. You're always hoping to just secure your next job, make sure you have as, you know, a couple jobs in the horizon, but it's hard. And there's a lot of hustle. As you said, it's a lot about who, you know, it's a lot about what projects are available, but it seems that with 30 FPS productions, you now had a relatively steady gig, very busy, by, I mean, considering over 800 projects, but but very busy. Um, but you had it consistently coming in. You didn't have to search for it anymore. You were just, you know, it was it was not given to you, but but you were assigned these projects. Was this still was it a salary based thing? Was it still per project you were being paid on? Just out of curiosity, was it a bit more stable? It was definitely more stable when I was was at, when I was originally hired. It was on salary, so I was on staff. I basically became on staff as a unit as the production manager, and over time, it became yeah, it became a full time project. I mean, a full time gig, and also like it, it's funny because I when I you asked me earlier why I went into this business, and it's just I always was on the creative side. I always wanted to direct. I enjoyed it creating uh, the producing side, the logistics just came naturally to me. I was very good problem solving and handling situations on the fly. And while I was at 30 FPS, I produced a lot, but I always fought to direct, you know, like uh, now the executive producer was also a DP. He, he shot everything and he also directed everything. So anything that he wasn't available, any smaller projects, I would fight for those. And I did get to get some of those directing opportunities, which I loved. And I never asked for a producer. I always wound up producing and directing it, which is a lot harder, but I, it is, that was the challenge I was going to, you know, I'd have to face if I was ever going to get the directing work because uh, it's hard to get hired as a director. So I wanted to take, get as much experience on the creative side as well. And we also had post-production in-house as well. So it was always great that I could follow up and work with the editors on projects that I was not only producing, but directing as well. And, and again, a lot of those times back in those days, we still shot film. We shot 35 millimeter, we shot 16 millimeter, and, ha- and that happened during the transition over to digital. Um, but yes, I, I was very fortunate that I was able to get on salary. And I sort of the pressure of looking for constant work um, sort of left me, but it was also a great opportunity to network with other crew and other creatives. There were times we'd fly in, you know, bring in a, a director or a DP and, you know, like work with these creatives from Florida or, or California or Los Angeles and things like that. You, you learn a lot, um, from bringing hired guns in, so to speak, because they bring a different perspective and experience level as well. 
That's amazing. So somewhere in the middle of all of this, of the 800 projects and then the 50 projects you directed or over 50 projects, in 2006, you wrote, directed, and produced the short Scores to Settle in 2007. And then you wrote, directed, and produced the short Lucky Day. So how did those projects change things for you? And what do you remember most about them? What I remember most about those films is that they were extremely challenging because they were th- – those films occurred while I was on staff at 30 FPS. Um, they were done on the weekends. Uh, I, uh, I'll never forget this. What really charged it was that there were some film competitions. And the scores to settle one was a, a – we, we were all listening to this Howard Stern show and he had a film competition. So we scrambled to make a movie to submit to his film festival. And we had all of this equipment – and at the time, we were a lot younger and everyone was more willing to come in and volunteer their time. So really, there was no cost except for, let's say, catering uh, we or casting or things like that. And we just pooled our resources and I wound up getting scores to settle done. We shot it over a two-day period on the weekend. So we worked all day, you know, seven that those five days and shot the film Saturday and Sunday and went back to work on Monday. I wound up sleeping in the production studio over the weekend because it was just that sort of thing. There were two 16-hour days. So come Monday, still wiped out. We're in the middle of shooting. I think it was a it was a multi we were in the middle of shooting a multi-camera project in our studio for the IRS train uh, doing a training film. So again, to get ahead, you have to make these sacrifices. With Lucky Day, I wound up it was another Festival. Fox was sponsoring this Steven Spielberg film competition that you, if you got selected, you'd get on the show to be, you know, it was like a film director competition. And that's what really uh, pushed me to write Lucky Day. And they specifically only gave you 30 days to write, direct, shoot, edit, and submit. So as soon as uh, my colleagues and I got wind of this, I, I immediately wrote the script and we went right into production and shot it and edited and turned it around in basically no time. That lucky day was shot in one day. It was probably like a 16 or 18 hour day shot in January or February. It was like 10 degrees outside. And I remember I was able to, I had to rent a, a lens, a zoom lens, a 25 to 250 ingenue zoom, which costs about two or 250, uh, $250 to rent for the day. But it was the one piece of equipment that we needed, but everything else, again, same thing, working full time, had to happen on a weekend and go back to work on Monday and things like that. But we, um, we made those, those are the sacrifices you want to make to, to get a project that you want to direct or produce or things like that, especially with access to all of that, uh, equipment and, and, and willing crew people to, to assist. And actors as well. Speaking of willing crew people and actors, so how, I mean, you kept saying we, so I, I know it's a collaborative effort, but w- how did you, like, I mean, did the people that were part of those, the crew and the actors, were the people that you knew just from all the work you'd been doing? Or how did you find people, like-minded people who wanted to create this? Well, I will say that the actors we did cast. I had a casting director who did it. I gave a lot, of, a great deal of work with, and he came in and we wound up doing a couple of short films and he wound up pulling the casting into one for both because uh, my, my DP at the time, Mike Sita, he also wanted to shoot a film of his own that I produced that he directed and shot, but he actually shot my film. So he was basically having the right DP 
we had the gear and, and all the other support were members of the, who worked at 30 FBS, who I always, you know, I, you know, these were production assistants that grew up into grips and electrics and sound people. Like I helped nurture them along the way and I would always try to teach and, and, and nurture them throughout the time. So when it was time for me to shoot these films, I called upon them to see if they would help. And they, and they, they did help. They, you know, they helped make these films reality. And I think it's all about building those relationships so that if you have to call upon them, call upon them, which I'm literally in production right now for something similar for a project that I'm directing, which I'm happy to circle back on, but it's a film that, um, you know, that I'm calling upon my team. I mean, you build a team over time, you know, if you're going to be a director or producer or production coordinator or manager, even if you're a gaffer or a grip, you want to build a team so that if you need the support when the time comes, I think that they're willing to help you. But you also have to give your time and energy to help their themselves as well. I mean, I I don't build a team because I, I'm looking for something in the future. It's just that's right. just my nature. Yeah. Because um, this is a business that uh, you need to pass down the craft to to the people who are coming up because we don't want that craft to be lost and we learn a lot in the field. And I think that's, there's a lot to, to teach, but there's also a lot to learn as well. 100% agree. Hence the podcast. Um, it's not doing it in real time, but it is a way of nurturing and mentoring. Um, well, it sounds like a really fun time. It sounds like obviously a lot of work, um, which you're used to, but but also just like a fun time being able to create with all these people and pull everyone into the fold. And um, it sounds really fun. Uh, and then in 2018, you started working as a producer on the two-time daytime Emmy-winning PBS travel show, Samantha Brown's Places to Love, where you worked for about 59 episodes, later working then as executive producer and a director for many of those episodes. This is also where you were nominated for multiple daytime Emmys, winning one in, I believe, 2019. Can you tell us a little bit about working specifically on this show? What changed for you? How, how did that feel to be on something like this? Uh, Samantha Brown's Places to Love is a, tr- is a tremendous show. It's a travel show. It's a much different style of production because you're now producing a, a show across the globe, you know, and it's a, a lot. It's definitely a challenge. I was, I had the fortune of meeting the director for the show, the primary director and series producer, Sylvia Kaminer. She and I uh, started working on, a, we were introduced to each other uh, for a film called Chosen, that Sylvia was asked to produce. Uh, it was a film starring Harvey Keitel. And the film actually was, it's an entire film shot, and I believe it was Hungary. It's a World War II film. Anyway, they the producers needed to bookend the film with the opening and close of a grandfather telling a story to his grandson. And that person cast was Harvey Keitel, and they wanted to film that in New York because that's where he was based. So it was a, I believe it was like a four day shoot. Uh, Sylvia was produced, uh, producing that USA unit and she and I got introduced to each other and she wound up hiring me as her unit production manager. So once we started working together on that project, we started, we continued to work together from that point forward. When she got the opportunity to work on Places to Love as a series producer and director, she had, because she had previously produced and directed for uh, Samantha Brown when she was on the Travel Channel for many years. And Sylvia also won an Emmy as a director and a producer for the, her Travel Channel days with Samantha. And when Sam uh, decided to go on her own and do her own show, 
for PBS. She called Sylvia, and Sylvia asked me to come aboard to help produce the the show with her. And that production is, was really exciting to me because it was sort of out of my comfort zone when you have to go to a city. I mean, I produced outside um, outside of the local area, but I was now producing a show that was in China, that was in Ireland, that was, you know, they, you know, we've done New Zealand, Germany. I mean, when you have to file for a permit, you don't in English, and it's not written in English. You have to figure that out. You know, we, you know, and it's also um, finding the people at yeah, the different places. And, you know, just the show created itself a, a great formula for how to handle logistics in the field and things like that. And and I I really enjoyed working on the show because it's a much smaller team, basically like a eight person team, seven person team. You know, it's varied over the year. You know, wherever we go, we should film it with two cameras. In a, you know, an entire episode is filmed in four days, and and it was, it's, it's really challenging. And it's funny enough because when Sylvie asked me to come aboard, the formula wasn't really a hundred percent there how we did things in the field. And funny enough, she was only available for the for the first two shows. She was only available for like the first day and a half, two days of the shoot. So. Not only was I asked to produce the show, I was also asked to d- direct it as well. So we wound up producing the first two episodes, which were shot in um, in Houston, Texas, and in Texas Hill Country. And so here I was producing the show and also directing the show uh, without sort of a formula in place. And there were longer days, but we sort of fine-tuned it over time over the last six years to, to you know, to what it is today and to be nominated for. The first year we were nominated for three Emmys uh, for directing, for host, and for show. And uh, Samantha won as host, and we, you know, the show won as best travel, you know, for for the category it was in. And to win a daytime Emmy first year out was was tremendous, huge. Uh, How did that really feel? Tremendous. Yeah, uh, it was like all, the best way I could say is that we were in in the audience. This was pre COVID, so we were in the audience. Uh, in Pasadena for the daytime Emmys, and when they called our name, I mean, walking up to that stage, up that, it felt like I was walking on air, to be honest with you. I just, I believed it, and I didn't believe it at the same, I mean, I believed that our show was quality, and but it was just like walk, dancing on air. It's a, It was a feeling that, I've, that I'll never forget, quite honestly. And, th- and then to, and then to be, nominated five times in the last four years once as a director four as a producer was extremely exciting as well so uh it never gets old we we appreciate we don't do things for awards but when our when our colleagues and our in the industry recognizes us for our work it's exciting and gratifying at the same time so while doing that which is a tremendous job on top of it you also produce and work on other films which we're going to talk about um which is also a lot. So in, in about 20, oh, there's a couple, but I'll just uh, focus on a couple for now. In 2022, a film you produced called Follow Her came out, a psychological thriller about an aspiring artist and the allure of fame and social media attention. It did really well in the festival circuit. Uh, can you talk about this project, how it came to you and your role in the production? So I, I talked about my relationship with Sylvia Kaminer before. She 
brought the project to me. She was set to direct it. Uh, she has produced many films in her career. This, and she's also directed non, um, nonfiction. She's directed a lot of documentaries. She did, she did this great documentary on Rick Springfield. And this was her first narrative that she was going to be directing. And she was also set to produce it, but she called upon me to produce it with her. Uh, and along with the star of the film, Danny Barker, Danny wrote the, wrote the film based upon her real life experiences. Uh, she used to, it's funny, she used to have this, uh, YouTube channel called Starvival, I believe it was called Starvival, and which was originally then at one point sold or bought by NBC, that she would go out and answer these wild Craigslist ads that she knew were sketchy and she knew they were sort of not what they were supposed to be. And she would record them like getting paid $50 to get tickled for an hour. And she would secretly record them and post them on her on her page and which was a little scary but she had this whole sort of like safety mechanism in place she based the script on this she was set to star as the main character so sylvia danny and i were to produce the film i was to take over as lead producer during production specifically just uh, again sylvia asked me if i was interested i read the script i was immediately drawn to it just because of I just thought the script was well-written, especially based on real experiences by Danny. And uh, so that was it. We were set, the three of us, where we sort of forged forward and started pressing forward to make this film a reality. How long was um, pre-production th- versus shooting versus post-production? Do you have a re- sort of recollection of timeline? Sure. We we began, we began we, the process began, for me, the process once I was brought on board, began late 2018. Uh, into 2019, uh, we, we, the film had to be scheduled be, to be filmed in two pieces. So we began filming in mid to late March of 2019. We filmed the, I would say half of the film in this up, up, um, upstate New York location based, the, it was a barn location. So the second half of the film, right? Yeah, the, the bulk of the middle of the film was filmed in Woodstock, Sargadies, uh, Kingston area. This was based upon one of the stars, Luke Cook, who was our, uh, one of the stars of the film, his availability. So we filmed all of that and we wound up filling all of the opening and closing portion, the New York City portion in 2020. So for pre-production, we basically had several months in, I would say two or three, I'd say, close to two and a half, three months prior to shooting in 2019 and similarly uh, in 2020 once we filmed in New York City. Which then pushes towards COVID. So how did COVID work with all of that? It was interesting because when we wrapped production in 2020, two weeks later, the entire world shut down. Uh, So we literally got the entire film in the can and now we were all sort of out of out of, you know, we were all sort of isolated, right? So Sylvia, interestingly enough, was able to edit the entire film remotely during during the pandemic, which worked out well because she was able to work one-on-one. I mean, she wasn't able to work in, in person, but uh, once things started lightening up, was able to work in person. So yeah, so basically we wound up editing over a period of time. It was it was a four or five year process for this film and it literally was just released on June 2nd yeah. of this year Crazy. which was really exciting and uh 
So it's been a it's it's been a bit of a process. My first film that I've ever produced, uh, a full feature length film that I've produced, and and it was a great experience working with Sylvia and Danny and the entire cast and crew. Our director of photography, Luke Luke Geisbuehler, is just tremendous. Our entire cast, uh, Danny Barker and Luke Cook and Justin Wilson. I mean, there, uh, uh, Eliana Jones and. Mark Moses. I mean, we had a tremendous cast. It was really, it was really a wonderful film. And I read somewhere that Sylvia actually got you to be in a couple different scenes in, as an actor. Can you tell us a little bit about that? This episode is brought to you by. I want to tell you guys all about Cave Day, which I've been absolutely loving the last few months. I joined Cave Day after reading Atomic Habits by James Clear. You might have even heard me mention Cave Day during the Atomic Habits five-part miniseries. Cave Day are group-focused sessions led on Zoom that focus on monotasks. So have you ever had a task where you constantly feel just distracted by Instagram, your phone, text messages, TikTok? It takes you forever to do something super simple. Cave Day asks you to put your phone somewhere where we can't see it and focus on the one task ahead of you for the period of time you're in the cave. I take it one step further and use one of their weekly planning workshops to decide on my goals for the week, breaking them down into monotasks and planning out my week of caves so I can get it all done. I've never been so productive. You can do one, you can sign up for one, two, or three hour long sprints, depending on the task in front of you. And it doesn't even have to be work. Let it be that yoga session you keep pushing off or meditating or making a fun lunch but have other people there to be accountable. I work from home and sometimes, especially with this podcast, it often feels like I'm doing everything on my own. So logging into these focus sessions, seeing other people work, using cave day strategies and techniques and routines that help me stay on top of it. I feel like it's just a no brainer. Join me today. Try the first month for only a dollar or your first three months for only $40. I get so much work done in the cave without feeling burned out. The link is in my show notes for the discount. And now back to the show. So it's funny enough, Sylvia just had it in her mind that she wanted me to be in on in the film. Just, just for fun? Just, just for... Just for just, I guess for fun or for just, she just, she just thought it would be great if I was made an on camera appearance. So funny enough, uh, I, I actually appear in the film four times, twice, four scenes, one time unrecognizable, one time partially recognizable, and two other times definitely recognizable. But it was funny. She asked me to be, to play like somebody who was, sort of recording art, the main star, Danny, like sort of incognito. And it's, you know, it's funny because here I am trying to produce the film and yeah. keeping everything organized. I said, Sylvia, I don't really have That's time for this. But I said, you know what? If you want, no problem. We'll make it happen. So it's funny. The first time, one of the first scenes that I was in when we were filming in New York City, I was prepping the night before with our assistant director and it just kind of hit me. I'm like, I need to prepare my wardrobe for tomorrow. What am I wearing? Like, I just have to, you know. So I, I have sort to of factor me idea. into this thing tomorrow. <laughs> 
So I organized my wardrobe and I appeared on camera and then, uh, and I also appeared in it again in the film. Same, and I wore very similar wardrobe the second time as a driver, uh, right? The second as, as a driver, sort of like a rideshare driver, which is even funnier because here here I was. I'm now driving a vehicle, which actually was my vehicle. So I felt <laughs> a little bit good about that since I'm the producer. I sort of reduced the liability of me driving. I don't have to worry about sure. anyone else driving. Mm-hmm. We have all these cameras set up in my truck, and. Here, Danny is in the back seat being filmed. We're sort of having this non-dialogue scene, driving around Brooklyn filming, and Sylvia was hiding in the very back portion of the truck, watching the monitor. So here we are. The crew is wrapping at the the apartment location, and that portion of filming, the three of us are driving around, filming the scene on our own, like the three producers, the director, the writer, and myself. And we call rap. It was just kind of funny to have that moment, the three of us uh, filming that final scene for that segment of when we were filming. And uh, I, I have to tell you, looking back, I'm glad that Sylvie asked me to be in the film because it, it was memorable to me to remember just that this was the first film that I produced and my role in it. And also to get an on, to get an on camera was was fun and it just it, i'll look back definitely for sure with a smile uh, you know having that experience well so michael i have to ask as an actor myself does that do you have any interest in acting on camera again for future projects are you open to it or are you just like hard no where are you in the scheme of acting in the future i do not aspire to be an actor for sure i am open to being being in front of the camera before and and i, I still will continue to be i i feel that my place is behind the camera, but as a director or as a producer or whichever role. But uh, if I need to be in front of the camera, I will absolutely, if, if that's what must happen, then that's what must happen. I always look back to when I, when I, when I was studying cinema, when I was in college and one of the directors that we studied was Charles Chaplin. And now Charlie Chaplin was known to be the tramp. He was known to be, he was the biggest star in the world. But he also directed the films. He also produced the films. He also edited the films, I believe. And I think he also scored the films. And he also starred in front of the camera. So to me, I think as a director or as a producer, I think the, the experience being in front of the camera is definitely beneficial because it to understand the pressure and understand what it's like to be knowing where the lens is and knowing how to understanding that side of, of the filmmaking process can only help you as a director, especially in terms of communicating what you're looking from an actor. You know, communications is, is everything. I think actors should understand what it's like to be behind the camera and vice versa. I think everyone walking onto the set for the first time can be intimidating. A lot of activity, a lot of people, you know, it's organized chaos. But understanding it when there's no pressure is also a good thing. So, Maybe if you have, if you're an actor and you want to get on the set, even as a production assistant, just to understand the process, that's a great learning experience, you know. And also, as a production person, as a director, maybe take an acting class, understand what it's like. It's just to me, it, it's all it's all a back and forth situation. So I would not shy to be in front of the camera again. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I enjoy the whole process, whether it's being in front or behind yeah. the camera. Oh, I love that. And I listen, I just was talking to another mentor on the podcast. Uh, he's a he's a 
very famous acting coach named Bob Krakauer. And I was asking him, he gets often hired by productions and studios to advise the directors and the production team um, if something's not working with an actor. And so instead of like, you know, not working with that actor anymore, cutting out all the footage you've done, you know, maybe they'll hire someone to, to go, hey, is there anything we could do to like make this this guy work the way we want him to? And a lot of the times he was saying it has to do with the the director's communication with the actor, because often they'll give a lot of adjectives, right? They'll be like, OK, be angrier here, be 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 more upset here. And actors can't we have to figure out on our own way how to translate that because you can't just be angrier in a real way. You have to figure out how to, to communicate with the with the person in front of you, in this case your acting, your scene partner, and how to develop that as, as viable direction, right? So it would always help, I think, both sides. It would help a director to, like you said, be in front of the camera once in a while, maybe take an acting class, be able to learn that feeling of just like, okay, well, I need to I figure out how to communicate with this uh, actor to get the performance I want, but also it benefits the actor to have directing experience and learn what it is to have a greater vision of a story and not just focus only on your own part in it, if that makes sense. So I love that. You know, I think uh, you brought up a lot of good points. And I think one important thing is whether it's in the script or not, I think it's important if you're directing a script is writing a backstory for an actor, you know, whether it exists or not, so that you can go through that backstory and share that backstory with the actor, even though it may not be on screen, but that actor can draw upon that and can understand where that where that character came from and can pull upon that anger versus being directed. I need you to be angry here. Why? I'm remembering the moment that I lost my mother and I picked up the phone to call her and she what like those whatever the backstory is I think it's important to build that and and share that in terms of how you prepare it's not just a script it's beyond the script it's that character comes into the story at a specific time in their life and they have to understand where they are so they can understand where they're what brings them joy or what brings them anger or what brings them relief or anything like that excellent absolutely um so then let's continue. So this is actually your most recent project that we, we've talked about anyway, which is in 2023, um, you just released The Good Half, which is starring David Arquette, Brittany Snow, Nick Jonas, and a bunch of amazing actors. It premiered recently at Tribeca Film Festival. So congrats again. I know we spoke about it, but congratulations again. What can you tell us about this production, about shooting, about post-production, about that particular timeline? So for The Good Half... I was brought on as a line producer for this film. Which for people who don't know what line producing, I think this is one of the most important jobs. So can you just explain a little bit briefly, what does a line producer do? So for my role in the good half as line producer, my my position was to basically run production operations, make sure that everything was smooth, make sure that everything was buttoned up and make sure that, you know, if any, you know, catch any or, catch anything that I would flag that that might cause financial uh, situations or any sort of anything that would disrupt the production. So I basically ran, I mean, I wasn't the assistant director who runs the set while we're shooting, but pretty much the line producer as a line producer, I pretty much ran all the behind the scenes while of what took place on set and off the set, so to speak, so that there would be, 
you know, and again, my approach as a line producer would be to make everything as smooth as possible. I, we have so many creative, talented, creative people, director Robert Schwartzman, our director of photography, Michael Rizzi and, and Nick Jonas and David Arquette and Brittany Snow and Matt Walsh. Matt um, Walsh. Uh, I mean, There's so Elizabeth Shue. Yeah, right. Elizabeth Shue, yeah. And the last thing I would want is for the production to get disrupted while the creatives are making, while shooting the film. So again, I typically would be producing or directing, but I decided to come on as, you know, I was asked to come on as a line producer because I, living and growing up in New Jersey, right outside New York City, the film was being shot in New Jersey. Um, it was, it takes place in Cleveland, but it was being shot in New Jersey and they wanted someone who had a, who had a handle in this and had home field advantage, so to speak. Now, the fact that the film was being shot in New Jersey, it, that it starred Nick Jonas, who's from New Jersey. Uh, I just said, you know what? This is something, this is a film that I want to be a part of. I read the script. I love the script. I felt that this was a film that I could help make a reality. And, I took a great sense of pride being from New Jersey that this film was being shot here in New Jersey and it was starring one of the world's biggest stars who's from New Jersey. And I, I really took it, I took a prideful personal approach to make sure that this production would be as smooth and successful as, as possible. So my, my role really took place on the set. Uh, and it, and that's really what the goal was. And that was what we sought out for. And now we also filmed a portion of the film in Los Angeles. And th so that was more interesting. That was another interesting bit because when we wrapped in New Jersey, we filmed about eight or, eight or seven or eight days in, in Los Angeles. Now we sort of had it. I don't want to say start from scratch, but the entire crew did not transition over from New Jersey to Los Angeles. And I wanted to keep that, that sense of smoothness and calmness, you know, the, you know, we, you know, just to create a sort of family and positive atmosphere on the set, not chaos. It's the last thing we wanted. And I feel, you know, like we achieved that in both New Jersey and, and Los Angeles. I'm really proud of that. And how long was pre-production for that? Because I think that also, you know, I'm not saying the longer the pretty production, the better the shoot goes, because obviously there might be a too long situation too, but there is a sweet spot, right? I feel like of, of okay, if it has this much time, it, we're probably going to be ready. Do you have an idea of what that would be? Like what would be a good production, pre-production on a feature film? I would say a good, gosh, I'd say around three, maybe four months, something like that, you know? There's sometimes there's a thing about too much time. There's not a sense of urgency. I feel like when there's a, there's a hard schedule, then you have to back, you know, I'm not saying back into it, but when you know the dates and you know when the first day of, uh, uh, of shooting is, you, you sort of motivated by that. And, uh, for the good half, we wound up filming this. This film was only done. This thing, this project was done rap, done filming in January. Oh they turned the God. film around in four months, which is sort of unheard of. Um, wow. We wrapped at the end of January, and it was cut in February, March, April, May, premiering a Tribeca in June, which is extraordinary. When was the deadline to submit for Tribeca, or how did that work? Gosh, I want to say it was in April or May or something Wow, like that's that. a very and, quick turnaround. Yeah, so we wound, up prep we wound up filming in New Jersey between Thanksgiving and Christmas, roughly. 
we began prepping it in October, so uh, middle of October. So we really had about a month and a half, <coughs> excuse me, about a month and a half to turn it around. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, beyond impressive. And then what was the premiere like for this this film? The, tr- the premiere was tremendous. It was really exciting for me because we had just wrapped in January. So here we were getting back together four months later, and it was wonderful to see the the crew and the cast and celebrate the film together because not everyone had to get got a chance to see it. They were seeing it the fir- for the first time at the premiere and just the whole experience of Tribeca, the the red carpet, the you know talking to press and and just getting a chance to see the film in, in a huge theater. I think it was almost nine hundred seats sold out. It was a huge audience and um, Q and A's afterwards. With the, the whole cast, with the with the exception of uh, Alexander Ship, were able to make it, and so the entire cast was there. Our writer was there, Brett Ryland and Robert Schwartzman. They did a wonderful Q and A afterwards, and we, then we celebrated at the after party, which was wonderful as well because reconnecting with the entire crew was was amazing. So it was just I can't say enough about Tribeca and 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 I think the film was wonderfully received. We had a really great audience. See, Michael, I'm so glad I met you, but I wish that I met you before the, the the premiere so that I could have gotten a ticket to go to this because it sounds amazing um, and very exciting. Very, very excited for you. Um, I do have a couple questions. We have a couple minutes. So in your opinion, right, let's say someone wants to hire you to either direct or produce their project. What's something that you wish filmmakers would know or have when coming to you with a script or with a project that they have in mind? Well, the first thing I'd want to do is talk to that person and, and understand it. There's never, for me, it's never just a yes or no. I'd want to look at the script. I want to talk about the plan, the execution, and and just really work through. I love, again, this is this industry is a collaborative industry. And I, I think that's the, for me, there's a huge sense of joy collaborating with, with every department, the, the costumes department, the you know the lighting department, the sound department, uh, the art department, and everything like that, and just even I mean makeup and hair. I mean it all everything impacts your project. But anyone who would be bringing me a project, I think I'd want to talk through with them and read their read their script or read their approach and understand what also what budget they think about. You know, like you know, it's one thing to have these grand you know, 30 page script or let's say a hundred page feature film, but say I only have this amount of money because there's a reality. The producer side into me understands the reality, what what must be done and, and what time frame. I also think that's important. What the subject matter is, is the, is, is there a voice here? Is there, who are we trying to connect? Where are we trying to show the film and understanding the whole, the bigger picture? And I think that's, uh, that's important to discuss as well. And then, for people who are looking for either of those roles or even a line producer, because that's one of the first, I think, jobs that are, are sort of collaborated with, how much are you or someone like you recommending a potential budget? So let's say someone comes to you and is like, hey, I have this project. It's I'm a first time filmmaker. I'm trying to figure out how to put this together. What? Would you be able to recommend a budget for them to go and then get? Would you want them to come in with a potential budget that 
works and then sort of pitch you it? What 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 kind of how does that first conversation go in your opinion? Uh, usually, I want to see the script. Uh, usually, I'd like to dive into the script to understand what's what's involved in the script. To understand the budget also mean meaning means understanding the script, the amount of location, the amount of actors. Are we dealing with visual effects? Are we dealing with firearms? Are we dealing with locations? Locations? Are we shutting street down? Do we have to hire police? Do we have to have a have a hundred extras? All of these things play into um, what the budget is. Under reading the script first and dissecting the script first, without doing a budget. I mean. Breaking a budget down for a script is is a time consuming process, right? Let's face it. But uh, I think you get an immediate sense of what that is. You know, when when someone comes to you, let's say a director comes to you, does that director understand the producing side and what 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 the costs are involved? You know, um, is this you know what kind of film is this? Is it uh, you know, where is this being filmed? For example, like Danny Barker, she wrote her own film and started in it. When she brought that to Sylvia and then, and then Sylvia talked to you about it, did she already have that budget in place? Did she already have an idea of, of how the massive scale of it would be? Did she have an idea that we might need to be broken up into these two sort of filmed segments where like we're filming this part here and then this part here? How much do you know ahead of time? And how much is it like, well, we come up, like you said, we collaborate on this stuff together, um, depending on whether you want to take on the project or not, obviously. Well, for Follow Her, Sylvia had done a preliminary budget. She knew she's, again, having produced many films, she was on top of all that. She knew that hey, we're going to be in Saugerties. We're going to be at this one primary location where we will only have to go break off and do three or four or five days away from this location. We have the advantage. We we are filming at this one barn location and everything. So we're, we've loaded in and we know we're going to be there for an extended period of time. So the budget was built accordingly. And that's sort of why it was written the way it was to help with the budget as well, just to have our main character in this one location. Now, when we were filming in New York City, it came a little bit more challenging because we were never really in one location right. more than one day. Yeah. Which means a lot loading of work in. For you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that's the thing. People, you know, that's the thing when it comes to a budget. If we're filming at a loft in Brooklyn, we need to get a permit to park on the street and it takes time to park, to unload. Do we need to hire a freight elevator operator? Does everything need to get up to the third floor? What time can we get out? Like, th- th- there's a process. Time is of the essence of you know knowing we for follow her. We we strictly targeted twelve hour days. We were not looking for four like sixteen eighteen hour days, which is sometimes no golden hour for you. <laughs> well, that's the thing. A lot of productions will. You know, but we were also mindful of the crew. While we know we needed certain things, we wanted to keep it within a manageable time because people are going to be working long hours and we want to make sure that we're getting the best out of everyone by trying to minimize, by trying to keep it at 12-hour days versus longer hour days and, you know, I mean, still allowing a 10-hour turnaround. But if you've ever been on a project where you're working 15 hours a day with a 10-hour turnaround and just, it's exhausting. It's you know, being in this business is a test of endurance, no question. Yeah. No and, question. And then, Michael, just, you know, I want to I wanna wrap up here. Anything 
going on with you right now? So obviously this just premiered, which is huge. In the last few months, have you been working on other things? What's occupying your time? What's next for you is the question. Um, well, I'm really excited. Well, first of all, I'm really excited that I had two films literally premiere within a week's time. It's crazy. Um, uh, on on you know, June 2nd with, with Follow Her, which is now available on uh, uh, Apple TV and um, you know, Prime Video and, and all the on-demand things. And then the good half premieres six days later at Tribeca, which, which was thrilling. So those so we're still ex- we're still Yeah, we're still in the same excitement. month of both of those things, not to take away from any of that. But uh, currently, I'm working on a on a new film that I'm directing, and I'm producing that I also wrote. It's a uh, it's a film that deals with emotional and mental health. I think it's a very important subject matter. Um, I'm literally at the location that we're going to be filming at right now, where we are we are tech scouting tomorrow. We are shooting in two weeks' time, and uh, we're it's uh it's definitely a, a project uh that i'm excited about uh so yeah knee deep in a in in directing and producing and you know i'm bringing our team uh, aboard and i'm bringing Aww. a few folks from the follow her team a few good. folks from the good half team and um and i'm really excited about the opportunity to direct uh, this project it's uh you know we don't talk about mental and emotional health uh, too as much as we should uh you know, a lot of people are suffering and uh, with depression and things like that. And we just sort of press forward um, without taking the time to take care of ourselves. And that's what this project uh, is all about that I'm, that I'm, that I'm working on. Well, I'm so excited for all of it, right? I'm excited to see the good half. I'm excited to hear about this. Um, and in the meanwhile, thank you so much for coming on and, and being on this podcast and sharing more of your story and your journey and giving us tips. And I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you. No, I appreciate it too as, as well. And uh, I mean, you know, it's fun to look back at your career and also remember that, again, can never be complacent. You're as good as your last project sometimes. And we always have to be humble to a certain extent, confident, but humble. And we never know where our next project is going to lead us. And you never know what person can, where, that you can help and not expecting anything in return that, 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 where that, how can help you down the road. So I appreciate your time as well. And I, and I thank you for having me. It's, it's been great to catch up with you for sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend in entertainment you know would love it. Let me know what you've learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram at Mentors on the Mic. I love reading your messages. Uh, you can also find me at, at Michelle Simone Miller on Instagram. On both accounts, I'll be sharing even more information about our mentors. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. It makes it easier for people to find our podcast, and I love reading your reviews. So thank you so much, and I'll see you next week.